Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. This is Rob Moore here with Hiring and Recruiting Legends, Part 3. So tagging on to the end of Part 2, we discussed caring for your team members. Now, I suppose when I started in business, I made the naive assumption that people work for me. You know, there's a boss and then there's staff or subordinates and they work for you and they report into you. I'd say in the last decade, that's completely flipped. And I believe I work for my team. Now, of course, if they're all listening to this, they're going to love this and send me on all their errands. But I really do believe that my purpose is to serve my team. Because when I serve the team and they're happy and fulfilled and moving towards their career vision and legacy, they're going to serve our clients and customers. They're going to help me and towards my mission. And therefore, you know, we're all going to be going in the same direction. So I think if you switch your mindset from they serve and subordinate us to we serve and subordinate them, that really helps. Now, of course, you'll know that I live the life leverage philosophy and therefore I'm not in the office every day and and I'm not the sort of grafting and grinding 10 hours or 12 hours a day in the office. Now, I did in the early days. I don't necessarily think that's the right thing. I don't think you have to wear the hard work as a badge of honour and lead by example. I believe one of the best things to do to lead a team, hiring, recruiting, and then once team, the team are in the organisation, nurturing and developing the culture, I believe if you help people towards their career goals and ambitions, towards their own vision and legacy, that's actually the single biggest and best thing you can do as a leader. So does someone want to work 12 hours a day like you? Probably not. So therefore, is leading by example by working 12 hours a day the right thing? Okay, it shows you're committed and you're passionate and you'll do what it takes. But I think it's a bit old fashioned. Now, here's the thing. When I got out of the office a lot more and was there a lot less, I used to think that would be a downside, but of course, that was my ego speaking. But actually, quite a lot of the team, our MD will tell you, many of the team people in marketing will tell you who are quite involved with what I do and I, you know, I share functions with them. They kind of love it when I'm not there because I'm not getting in their way and, you know, they can, they can be more autonomous and, and do things their way, which are often better, by the way. So I believe one of the best things you can do as a leader is get out of their way and let them do some of the functions and tasks you used to do that helps them on the vision towards their career goals you know, their lifetime vision. So I think this is the the antithesis of, you know, I think it's a real myth, hard work and graft and hustle. Because if you're grafting and hustling and doing the jobs of three people, there's two people that can't fulfill their own career because you're doing their job. And if you're micromanaging them, they're not able to go towards their vision. They just feel like you're task monkey. So get out of their way, find out what their life and career values are, and then give them tasks, functions, roles, projects, autonomy, that enable them to do that, and you'll have an amazing culture, you'll have a very fulfilled team member. Now, if they're someone coming in, you're selling them this, you're finding out their career culture and values and their life values, and you're selling them how you can give them this, and then if they're in the team, you're helping give them this. And the way you work for them and serve them, which serves your organisation, your vision, and your clients, 
is you answer any questions, deal with any concerns, challenges, feedback, critique of you, of the organisation. You answer all those and solve all those problems to help them towards that vision and legacy. Because if they fulfil their career vision and legacy with you, they're serving your career vision and legacy and your enterprise career vision and legacy and therefore your worldwide mission if you have one. So therefore, listen to your team, solve their pains, answer their questions, love them, care for them enough to take time with them. Now, that could be you and should be you sometimes. That could be managers and should be managers sometimes. It's not always you, because if you've got 60 people in the office and you're doing one-to-ones with everyone, that's your full-time job and you can't serve everyone. But if everyone knows that if they really need to, they can speak to you, they can give you feedback, they feel comfortable to challenge you to give you criticism and feedback because you're not defensive. Because I used to be defensive. Um, my fiance used to work with us for five years. I've learned to say with us, not for me. And um, one day she fired me. And any feedback she'd want to bring, okay, maybe she was a bit uh, aggressive with it. But I just take that so personally. Like she was, she was ripping apart the very essence of my being and, you know, the identity of me. That, she wasn't doing that. She was just having a bit of a, a feedback moment, a moan, a criticism about things that happened in the organisation, which are separate of me. And I took that very personally. And you want to be able to separate the mission and the organisation from you so that you can take the right feedback and critique. And you can literally crowdsource through your staff and your team all the solutions to all the problems. Now, what you don't want to get into the mindset of being and thinking is, oh, they're just moaning and, oh, they just want better benefits and, oh, they want to work less and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, sometimes you can do that. And some of your less engaged workforce will be like that. And hey, you know, give them what they need. And if they don't step up, then they need to move on. So have the mindset that if you solve these problems, you can give them an amazing career. Keeping them happy keeps your customers happy, keeps your vision happy, keeps you happy, keeps your kids, keeps your family happy, keeps the world happy. And I've learned in the last two years, as the recruitment world has changed, that actually we need to advertise the culture of progressive and unlimited success and my other companies. You know, we need to sell the vision of how we're unique and different from every other company and corporation. And I'll admit that in some interviews, maybe I've been a bit firm. Maybe I've been a bit interrogative, if that's a word. Maybe I've cut them short because I know I've got back-to-back ones with high-level people and you know, and maybe I really didn't sell the company because I thought, well, their job is to sell me on why they should work for us. Now, if I'm Google, I can sit there with the kind of confidence knowing that half the world wants to work for me. But we're not Google yet. And, 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 you know, maybe that's a bit flippant to think that. So when you are hiring, recruiting legends, you've got to sell the company and the vision as much as They've got to sell you. You've got to sell how you're unique. You're different. You know, can they work flexi time? Do they get free drinks and do they have a a games room? And, you know, okay, I don't want to go too barefoot beanbag here on you. But what makes you completely unique and different? Because you want your organisation to be an advert such that everybody in your town or city goes, we need to work for them. Do you know they do this? They do that. Do you know they're changing the world? Do you know they're anti-corporate? Do you know you have flexi time? Do you know you, you have all sorts of benefits? And... I used to think we'd get taken advantage of if we did that. And with the less engaged team members, you will. But that's your job to filter that. So when you're you're this massive advert for being the best place in the world to work, you don't need to pay recruitment agents. You don't have the cost of hiring and firing and the cost of recruiting bad people because you're going from not having enough good talent to interview to too many. 
And in the last two years, the recruitment market has changed such that it's a, a candidate's market now more than it's an employer's market. And five or six years ago, we could maybe be a bit more negotiable with the salaries. And, you know, we could, we'd have a lot of applicants and a lot of people almost begging for work. And now we're seeing great people and, and they're getting snapped up and people are may, maybe will start beating you on the amount that you offer. And between first interview and second interview, they get a counter offer from their existing firm or whatever. So it is a candidate's market now. And I think that's a good thing because I think that makes you step up and really sell the vision of your organisation. So remember, you, your HR department, and if your HR department is you or the one staff member you have, the ads you place, the CVs you send out, it's, you know, you're selling people coming to work for you. You want people to leave every other organisation to come and work for you. You want them to tell their friends that they're in a dead-end job and come and work for you. So how can you find this talent? Well, you can run job ads. So they're the usual sites. There's Monster and all the other job ads where you can run an ad. If you're going to run an ad, make sure it's creative, it's different, it's unique. Use the ADA model of attention, interest, desire, action. Make sure that it stands out completely uniquely and it's very different to other ads. Be honest Talk about the downsides of your organisation and the kind of people that you, you don't want to attract. And um, so sell against depositioning what it's like working for more corporate entities, for example. So you want to make your ad completely unique, quirky, different, memorable, following the ADA model. The next strategy is you can use recruitment consultants. Now, I used to think they were, the, they were the antichrist when we started because their fees are so high. But at the end of the day, if they get you an amazing talent, they're worth their fees. And actually, we have two or three really good recruitment consultants. You tend to get them specialising in certain niches. So sort of marketing and digital agency, there's one specialist recruitment agency we use. And maybe more an admin, it's a different one. So get them all on the go, as many of them as you can. Don't discount them because you don't think you have the money. Some of them may be negotiable, though it's probably a bit harder now in the candidates market. You may be able to reduce the fee or reduce the upfront fee or extend the probation period of the fee. Uh, so, you know, you can certainly give that a go, but I, I would recommend using recruitment consultants and agents and agencies, and I'd recommend using as many as you can and building a good long-term relationship with them. So if you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. that if you do get a bit of a dud higher, they might roll the fees onto the next one. So that's very important. Something we used to write off at the start because it was cheap. Of course, then they're, sorry, because we were cheap. Of course, then you've got referrals. Now, referrals are great because if someone good refers someone, 
then their reputation, that person who's referring the person, is on the line if they refer a dud. Like, if you refer someone to watch a film, you're not going to refer someone to watch a rubbish film because that reflects really badly on you. So referrals are great, but they can be a bit of a slow burn. And often you'll need to ask for referrals. So I recommend you pay for referrals. You say to anyone and everyone in social media groups, in your organisation, if you've got staff already, to your outsourcers, you say, hey, we pay a referral fee. It could be 250, 500 quid, whatever you, know, you think is excitable and motivating to the person. You'll probably want to make the stipulation if, they've be, if they pass their probation. So just to sort of de-risk people trying to game the system and just sending people for interviews. So getting referrals and then instigating referrals by paying referral fees, that's a great strategy. Headhunting is, is probably one of the better strategies. Of course, you have to be careful the way you do that. You don't want to, I'll try and be polite here, defecate on the doorsteps of the people that you, what, did I just say that word? Okay, so I'm trying to keep uh, a non-explicit on the podcasts. You know, I don't recommend going and just blatantly trying to nick everybody from everybody because you know you've got to, you're going to be in this business a long term you don't want to create enemies but what what you'll very often find is that people have been in a role a long time who are very good they will have a pain point maybe they don't have equity maybe they felt they work really hard and they don't have their name above the door or they don't get recognition or their pay doesn't reflect the time and effort they've put in and so when you find demotivated people through asking questions or you find people who you know, you know they're looking, then you can headhunt them because they would have been leaving anyway. Now, some people have more of an aggressive attitude towards headhunting. We have in the past, but it has had a cost, which is it's, we've fallen out with business owners who we've sort of maybe been a bit too overt with our headhunting strategies. But finding someone in role, doing what you want them to do, knowing that they're good at it and you've seen it and there's proof is probably the lowest risk way of getting someone in. So if you can give them equity or if you can give them career vision or if you can give them flexi time or if you can give them, you know, loads of benefits like gym and an extra week off on holiday and working from home one day a week and whatever, which is kind of really much more the modern kind of enterprise way of doing things, they will leave the organisations they're bored of and they'll leave in the right way and it, it, it won't be such an overt sort of nicking of them and so you won't fall out with people. Now, there are upsides and downsides of each one, by the way. I wouldn't say one is better or worse. We've had referrals and that's been great, but we've had referrals which haven't been so great. Some of probably our best, most long-standing members have come from recruitment agents and consultants. But many of those have come from the corporate background. So the more enterprising or entrepreneurial people we've, we've sourced haven't necessarily come from recruitment consultants. So, you know, we often, try, we often think that they're better or worse. They're just different. And you'll want to utilise multiple strategies, just like in marketing, you want to use multiple strategies so that you increase the flow of talent. Now, I, as you know, I believe in having a rolling recruitment policy, which is your, your always recruiting, such if you have amazing talent, you'll find somewhere for them because someone who's average might pay for their salary and 50%. Someone who's amazing might pay for their salary and 500% or more. So why shut the door on someone just because you're not recruiting? You know, that's like really stupid, I think. So have a, a rolling recruitment process. Think about your strategy for pay. So you may have low basic, high commission. You may have slightly lower salary, but amazing benefits. You might have slightly lower salary, but an amazing culture. You might have a strict culture, but you know, higher than average salaries. 
You might have all of those if you want to really go for it, but of course there, there are associated risks with that. But remember, if you're going to reduce salary, you've got to have huge upside in other areas to negate a slightly lower salary. And if you remember from part one or two of this three-part podcast, according to surveys, 17% reduction in salary will be taken by someone if they enjoy working for the person and, you know, they enjoy the culture, you know, so they have work happiness. It's worth 17% reduction in salary, according to surveys, which is which quite, quite a surprising statistic. Now, I'm not saying make it a happy culture, sing kumbaya, and then not their salaries by 17%. But hey, it's not the only thing. Now, if we link this back to finding out their vision and values by asking them what's most important to them in their life, and what's most important to them in their career, then you can link their individual remuneration plan based on what's most important to them. So if family and health are most important to them, give them Fridays off and give them a Graze subscription and let them have free healthy food. If money, money and money are their top three values, don't give them any of that fluffy stuff, they won't care about that, but give them really high, no limit of upside commissions. So what you don't want is a one-size-fits-all. You want choice. If health is someone's most important value, you give them really good health care and dental package, for example, and they'll really benefit that. If security is really important to them, you give them a good pension bonus. So what we found was when we, when we started being a bit more open and flexible and generous with our package, because we didn't have a package when we were an, an entrepreneurial enterprise, we thought that because people could learn from us, that would be a great thing. Now, that was a great thing. So if you can also add that people get good training and development and they're working for an entrepreneurial enterprise where they'll learn, you know, skills and techniques that would that would be able to carry forward into their career. That's another benefit. So maybe there's a training and development plan. But what you do is you have like 10 of them, all of the ones I've listed, and you give them a choice of four. And then they pick the ones that they want that are most aligned with their values. Therefore, they have a package that they love that's bespoke to them. It makes them harder to leave. And again, they're, they're able to live out their vision and values. Okay, so I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. I'm really enjoying serving you and delivering it for you. So the interview process. So before you do an interview, make sure your CV is really good. Sorry, make sure your job ad is really good. So that's your CV for the business, if you like. So the job ad you do, make sure your job description is short, sharp and innovative, but tells them what they've got to do. Three to seven key result areas so they know exactly what they've got to do and the function of their job. So that's clear. You don't need to go into income generating tasks or sort of the operations and staff handbook and contract at this stage. So just do your job ad, your job description and your key result areas. That's that's almost like the advert for attracting talent to your business. Then you filter the applications. So any CV that doesn't look any good, don't interview them. And you really want to push your recruitment consultant on this. Don't let them send you, you know, that isn't good quality or isn't the type of people you're looking for. Otherwise, they'll just send you anything. And how do you know if a CV is good or not good? So you've got to make sure it's relevant to role, relevant experience. I don't like CVs where they've worked somewhere different every year. So I like to see, on average, they've they've moved every three to five years. For CVs, 15 years, and it's got three different jobs, that's a really good thing because people tend to do in the future what they've done in the past. So I don't want to see a checkered CV. Don't want one that's really long-winded and waffly. So, you know, you'll probably get an idea when you read through CV. So you want a good CV filtering process. Then you could do a telephone interview or you could get one of your team members to do a telephone interview. You can write the scripts. I'm sure if you Google telephone interview, you could probably get a good one. And you might want five questions, screen them from that. 
You might do values and vision. Uh, you, you might ask them about their previous roles, what their strengths and weaknesses are. And uh, that's a good way of filtering. Then you do first interview, second interview, maybe third interview. We never used to do second interviews. I think it's smart to do a second interview, even when you're not got that many team members. And then when they join, you have probation period. You might have standard probation of three months. You might extend the probation if they haven't passed the probation. So if you go through that process, then you're de-risking making bad hires, which can cost up to £20,000. If you remember James Kahn, who's a £200 million man who wrote the book The Real Deal, who was on the UK Dragons Den, he, he told me face-to-face that a really bad hire can cost you up to that in double recruitment fees on the way in and then the new one on lost business, on sort of damaged culture. So you really want to be careful. As they say, slow to hire, quick to fire. Then the interview, pro, uh, interview itself. Now, it's very easy to be gamed. Now, what you find is if you don't need team members, you're probably a little bit more wily and smart and sceptical and questioning in the interview. What you find, though, is if you really need team team members, you tend to have happy ears and and rose-tinted glasses. And I'm trying to be self-aware when I'm doing interviews. I haven't done interviews for about three years because we've got a team of staff that do that and I trust them. But I have been doing interviews recently because we're hiring a new FD and that's quite a high-level hire. And uh, as the interviews have gone on, like as we're in sort of month three, I'm finding myself being a bit more rose-tinted and having happy ears because we really, I feel like we really need this person. We're losing ground and I've got to check myself and go, that's not what you want to do because if you do that and you get someone in, it could cost you a lot of money. You could lose good team members if you're hiring at a high level. So you've got to be very careful to stay balanced. You want to pick them. Now, I don't mind putting someone who I interview through a bit of uh, challenge, interview them, grill them, interrupt them a bit, take them on side rows, ask them some sort of slightly strange questions that they're not sure where you're going. Now, I, I guess probably in the early days, I was probably a bit aggressive. Maybe I was more like they are on Dragon's Den because I didn't want any, what would you call it? I, I wanted to separate the wheat from the chaff. But you've got to be careful about that because if they go and tell the recruitment agency that you were horrific, that'll get out there. And also, a lot of people are nervous in interviews. And so if you constantly do that and put them in pain, you might actually get them into sort of the the fight, flight or freeze mentality, which I've seen happen a lot. And therefore, you didn't really see the real them. So I think you've got to make them feel comfortable. You've got to build some rapport with them. But you've also got to give them a few surprises so that you can get through the sort of gaming. Because I've seen people who are brilliant interviewees. They're so well studied on... Be on interviewing, but actually they're not really great in the role and they totally gamed it. So, you know, when you ask them things like, so, uh, you know, tell me some of your strengths and weaknesses. And what they do is they tell you 15 strengths, then one weakness, but they package it as a strength. They say, oh, well, people always say I'm a a perfectionist. And I suppose that's a downside. But actually, that's really good because that means I never do anything wrong. And and I just think, whatever, you're just gaming me. So, you you know, you want to you want to watch for those standard answers where they're always packaging it as a benefit. And so therefore, you want to ask good questions that don't allow them to answer in the standard way. So how can you do that? What you've got to do is you've got to ask them questions that elicit the response you're looking for, but the question isn't the question. So if you said, what are your strengths and weaknesses? That's the question. And you want to find out their strengths and weaknesses, but they will be able to package that and they'll be able to game you in the interview. Whereas if you said, tell me what a scorned ex-boyfriend would say about you if they're in the room right now and you weren't, and you got a bit more creative, 
then you may be able to go through their conscious mind and elicit a proper response that isn't gained. If you said, tell me about how you have creatively solved problems in your previous role, that's exactly what they're going to do. But if you said to them, what would you do if there was a fire in this building right now? Or if you said to them, could you work out how many bits of chewing gum are stuck under every single desk in this office? You know, and you ask, you actually throw them a random curveball scenario. If they go, oh, I don't really know, then you know that they're not creative and they're not going to solve problems. But if they give you an innovative, quirky answer or they go through the process of trying to solve it, even if they don't know how to solve it, you know that's the way they are. Because how you do anything is how you do everything. So what you've got to try and do is think about what you, the, the response that you want, but you've got to go around the side and ask the question where they don't know where you're going or, or what you're leading to. So and the way you do that is by asking a non-standard, quirky, curveball question. And number two, giving them some shocks and surprises, interrupting them a little bit, throwing them a little bit off course, building the rapport and getting them comfortable and then just pulling away a bit and interrogating them a bit. So I like to ask them a question. Then as soon as I can hear them starting to package an answer that they've clearly practiced and rehearsed before, I'll interrupt them and ask them something else I want to know. And they don't have to time to prepare for the answer to that question. So they're, they're rambling, telling me about how they did something in 1985 in their role that was really good and they've, they've spent three minutes too long answering the question. I'll go, so tell me what's the most important to you in your life. Now, if I started by saying, so what's the most important to you in your life, they might know I'm eliciting values. But if I interrupt halfway through a question, they may not know that. So again, you want to be, and, and, and you just want to sort of lean in, pull back, lean in, pull back. Make sure at the end of the interview, you really sell your organisation. You know, you show some gratitude. You, you know, you really finish it well. I believe in being truthful. I believe not in fluffing people. But at the same time, you, you know, you want them giving good feedback to the recruitment agent or the recruitment consultant. All right, then you've got to learn to read between the lines. So it's not what they say, it's how they say it. Now, we had an interview recently and there were three of us interviewing and there was one interviewee and it was second interview and she she was brilliant interviewee you know I love would have loved to have a video and play it she 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 knew how to be interviewed she was great and once I started sort of interrupting her a bit and just gently interrogating her she was quite open with me and then she turned immediately to her right crossed her legs and faced our MD and I was just like wow that's interesting you know that tells me something you know I, I remember interviewing someone and uh, we were talking about whether they wanted to run their own business or actually want to work in a role. And they said, I think I would like to run my own business. And I looked at them and then they said, no, 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 I want to run my own business. That's interesting. What was the first thing they said? The first thing they said was, I think I want to run my own business. And that told me a lot more truth than kind of the correction. So look for reading in between the lines, the body language, the eye contact, the, 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 the non-verbal cues, the things that fall out of their mouth. A great book on picking all this up is one by Joe Navarro. I think it's called What Everybody Is Saying. He used to be an ex-FBI agent. So if you, uh, What Everybody Is Saying by Joe Navarro, you get how, learn how to pick up good non-verbal cues. So you're reading between the lines in the interview and not just what they're saying. Uh, you want to be careful to get rid of those ro rose-tinted glasses and happy ears. Okay, so how do you build an HR department? What you do is you outsource all your HR at first. Don't do it yourself. Get your PA or an outsourced firm to do it. I talked about that in part one of hiring and recruiting legends. And then you build your team such that someone in your team takes over that. PA or admin, and then maybe when you get to between 35 and 50 staff, you can have a full-time HR department and a person 
And then eventually they may get a PA, you know, so there's two people in the HR department, there's a full HR department. So for ages, I was asking all my business mentors and friends, what number of staff, do you have an HR department, you know, a full-time person in it who's building a department? And I could never really get any answers. And I think I listened to Scaling Up by Vern Harnish. And I think I thought, wow, you know, this is the first book I've ever listened to that actually gave me some numbers and statistics. And it was about 50, I was told, but I always want to be ready. So don't get ready, be ready. So we started at 35 and that was a great move. And Catherine, who's head of HR, she's brilliant and she solves so many problems for us. She's, she's got us out of a few tribunals. She can lead all the culture. She manages all the staff handbooks, the contracts, the policies, all the new packages. If anyone's got any grievances, if there's staff sickness and absenteeism, high turnover, low turnover, KPIs of all the HR functions, she manages it all. And that's absolutely brilliant. She does one-to-ones. The managers do one-to-ones with their, I don't like to use the word subordinates, but you know, the people that they're managing. She'll do one-to-ones with the managers. The MD will do one-to-one with her and maybe a couple of the high-level managers. And I'll do a one-to-one with the MD and my PA. So you have a nice sort of organizational structure, which means that you don't have to do all of these yourself. We do the start, stop, keep surveys every month. So we ask our staff, every month through Catherine and HR, what should we start? What should we stop? What should we keep? So we're constantly asking our team, what do you love about us? What do you hate about us? What are we good at? What are we rubbish at? What are our competitors doing that we should be doing? You know, how should we change? How should we pivot? And they're really insightful. And I have a monthly meeting with our HR team, Mark, Catherine and Catherine, to go through those. It's so insightful. And when they give that feedback to someone in HR and not you, the business owner, they'll be more honest because they're not packaging it or trying to impress you. So that's a fantastic thing to do. Make sure that you encourage and garner a culture of 360 degree feedback. If people in your team don't dare challenge you, don't dare give you feedback, it might make your ego feel good, but you're building a a militant operation and you're not learning, growing, improving. You want to be challenged. Your ego doesn't, but you want to be challenged. You want to grow. You want to learn. You want to be self-aware. If you're making mistakes or, you know, you might think you're doing something great for your organisation, but actually it might not be. You might be being too flexible. You might be being too generous. You might be being too changing your mind too many times, being too creative. And if you don't ask your team, you'll never know. But they've got to feel comfortable enough to give you that feedback and that critique. And you should encourage that. And then when you do, you'll always be learning and you'll always be growing. Accept the fact that you'll make mistakes when you hire. It's okay. I'd rather you try someone than never hire. I'd rather you make one bad hire and then find a good one next time and tighten up your process and policy rather than never hire. No one is perfect. So, you know, you can do all, you can take your time getting personality profiles and following all the interview systems and processes and getting great scripts and doing all this. And someone can game you, can still get in, or they can be good and then be soured by the culture, or they can have a life change, or they can come in and then tomorrow they get pregnant. And of course, then you've got to go through that whole process or, you know, they could set up in competition or whatever. All these things happen. So just accept the fact that that's your journey and that you'll make some mistakes. You'll also hire some amazing people too. So just do it. Just get out your own way and do it. So I've really enjoyed doing the three-part series on hiring and recruiting legends. If you've got any feedback for me, please let me know on my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Rob Moore Progressive, or in the Disruptive Entrepreneurs Community, if which if you're not in, you can search on Facebook and find it, the Disruptive Entrepreneurs Community. Did you think doing a three-parter was good or not good? Should I have done it all in one in like a two-hour single podcast or did you like it in three parts? I want to make the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast 
the best podcast in the world and I want to serve you. So please do send me any feedback. I'm really excited because I've got some amazing podcasts coming up in the future. I've got someone who, whilst might not be a household name, is probably one of the most innovative, disruptors, future tech entrepreneurs in the world. He's written so many books on future and innovation and change and disruption. And I'd say he's in the top five people in the whole world on understanding future trends. So I'm really excited. I'll be interviewing him in the next few weeks. I've also got an ex-heavyweight UK boxing champion. Well, I say UK, he's a world heavyweight champion, but he's a, he, he's a UK-born boxer. He's become a very good friend of mine, and it's completely different. He's very disruptive. And uh, whilst it's a bit more innovative in terms of he's not necessarily a full-on hardcore businessman per se, he has continued his career after boxing and he does earn a very good living and he became a world champion. So I'll be interviewing him too. So I'm really looking forward to those and many more. I've got two billionaires I've got lined up to be interviewing in the future. So really looking forward to sharing that with you. And remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. 